This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. When considering any kind of change or incorporating a new practice in your life, whether it's writing for bliss, writing for therapy, or writing for transformation, I like to mention what Zen master Shunryu Suzuki referred to in his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, 1976, as maintaining the sensibility of the beginner's mind. The idea is that the beginner's mind tends to be open to many possibilities, unlike the expert's mind, which only sees a few. Remaining open-minded and available for new ideas is important. In the same way that we might witness in young children, who are like sponges for learning. Having a beginner's mind is also about suspending your disbelief and going with the flow of your experience. Hopefully, when you have made the decision to engage in personal writing, you've given yourself permission to take yourself on a voyage of self-discovery. This entails reviewing your life with a child's curiosity, awe, and simplicity. In so doing, there is a good chance that significant revelations will begin emerging from your subconscious mind. Writing with the magic mindset of a child can be a fun and poignant way to write and to unleash deep, dark, and surprising secrets. The art of writing for change is about setting out on a journey. Imagine yourself packing to visit a new land, one you've never visited before or one you have not visited in a long time. Be alert and mindful of the details of your landscape. Document them in your journal or on your computer. Don't worry about the direction of your musings. For the moment, simply accumulate them. You can decide later whether your writing will be for you alone, for prosperity, or for public sharing, says Diana Rabb. In this episode, Valeria Tellis interviews Diana, the author of Writing for Bliss, a seven-step plan for telling your story and transforming your life. Diana Rabb, MFA, PhD, is a memoirist, poet, blogger, speaker, and award-winning author of nine books. Her work has been published and anthologized in over 1,000 publications. She frequently speaks on writing for healing and transformation. She's been writing since the age of 10 when her mother gave her a Khalil Gibran journal to help her cope with her grandmother's suicide. At that early age, she realized that writing made her feel better and helped her heal from life's challenges. She says that she's spiritual but not religious. She views writing as her spiritual practice and she writes every day. 
Rab, Blogs for Psychology Today, Psych Central, and Thrive Global, and is a guest blogger for many others. She's the editor of two anthologies, Writers in Their Notebooks and Writers on the Edge. Two memoirs, Regina's Closet, Finding My Grandmother's Secret Journal, and Healing with Words, A Writer's Cancer Journey, and four poetry collections, including Lust. Her latest books are Writing for Bliss, a seven-step program for telling your story and transforming your life, and Writing for Bliss, a companion book. Here is the interview with Diana Rabb. In your own words, who is Diana Rabb? Diana Rabb is, wow, I don't know that I've ever been asked this question before, and I'm 65 years old. I am, I would actually consider myself a lover of life, a seeker, a healer, uh, someone that uh, often has, usually has other people's needs and concerns uh, in mind before my own. I'm a writer, I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother. I'm a lover of the human spirit, and I love and I love life, and I'm also a survivor. That is wonderful. I'll be asking you lots of questions, and I would like to know more about you. Before I ask you questions related to your work, writing for Bliss, your book, a seven-step plan for telling your story and transforming your life, I have a few warm-up questions. What is life? What is life? Well, I was once asked that question, what is life, uh, in terms of what is important to me is how I interpret that question. And for me, life is love. Life is passion. Life is joy. Life is, life is what you make it. <laughs> yeah. What is the meaning of freedom to you? Meaning of freedom is to do what brings you joy and to be able to have the luxury of choice. I like that. Yeah, choosing, right? What is the most important person in your universe? I don't really have one person in my universe that's most important. I, th I think no person is an island. We cannot be living alone. And so I'm, I can say who has inspired me in my lifetime, but I really can't say there's one, one person. It really depends on what stage I'm at, where I'm at, what my needs are. So it really varies. Uh, you know, I think on our life journey, people come into our lives for a reason. And so there might be someone that comes in at a particular time that meets a need at that time. And so it really depends on where I'm at. What would you say if someone answers myself as the most important person in the universe? Well, um, that's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. To me, it sounds selfish um, because I don't think if I just thought of myself and not as part of a collective, I think that's sad, actually. I mean, I think narcissists would say myself, you know, mm. I have a mother that's a narcissist, so I know very well how narcissists think. I think it's important to have compassion and love for yourself. I mean, that's a totally different subject, but I don't think saying myself is the most important is, is a powerful thing. 
Yeah, I like the way you said, yeah, that maybe the word important, we could replace that. Because what I really talked about now was about self-compassion and self-love. Um, when saying yourself, that means you embrace yourself as the most important person, because without you, nothing else is possible. Well, it's also possible to love uh, other people unless you love yourself. Yeah, that's interesting because that's the way I think too. But somebody answered my question, one of my questions differently. She said that we can also learn to love unconditionally ourselves by loving others unconditionally first. So that was a different, interesting answer that made me think. Do you think it's possible? To love others unconditionally and yourself? Is that what you're saying? Uh, I think it works the opposite. I think you have to love yourself unconditionally before you can love others unconditionally. Right. That's what I thought, too. Yeah. Let's leave the subject for later. <laughs> Maybe I have some other questions here for you on self-love. Let me continue with my um, warm-up questions. I have a few others. What is the world's greatest need, in your opinion? The world's greatest need, I believe, is compassion. It's compassion different from love? And from your perspective? Is compassion different from love? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I think uh, compassion, it comes more from the heart. Love can be just, I don't know, to me, I think of love as, you know, love for, uh, you can have compassion for humanity, but you don't necessarily have love for humanity. You might have love for your people that are close to you, family and friends. But compassion, I think, is broader. Is that connected to empathy? Would you say that? Yeah, I would say compassion is connected to empathy. Mm -hmm. yeah. What, where, and who is God to you? Um, I'm really not uh, someone that uses the word God ever. So uh, I think that God is, or if you're going to use that word, the uh, is yourself. It's it's whatever is if you whether you believe in Buddha, the spirit, God, uh, I think it's all this person or this this being is inside yourself. I don't think there's someone that's sitting up in the sky that's that I, I don't believe I don't worship anybody. I think uh, it's it's whatever's living inside you, whatever you believe in in your heart. My last warm up question. What is the purpose of your life? The purpose of my life is very closely tied to um, my passion, which is writing and sharing and teaching the joy of writing and also loving people that are important to me, my family and my friends. Yeah, that's wonderful. The way um, writing is connected with that purpose. Talk to me about the inspiration, intention and the process of writing your book, Writing for Bliss. Well, the inspiration for writing this book was based on my students. I was teaching a lot of workshops on writing for healing because that was the subject of my Ph.D. dissertation. And a lot of my students in my workshops said that they didn't they were very sad when the workshops ended and they wished they could have a re reference book that they can go to when they wanted to have some questions answered or to continue to be inspired to write. So that was my inspiration. My whole journey as a writer itself began when I was 10 years old and my grandmother, who was a World War I orphan, was looking after me and she took her life in my childhood home when I was 10 and I found her. And it was back in the 60s and at that time therapy wasn't a big thing. And so 
my mother was an English major and she gave me uh, a journal, Cahill Gibran journal, and she told me to write my feelings. And ever since then, I've been inspired to write when I was going through challenging times. And I just wanted to share that journey in writing for Bliss. I wanted to share the joy of writing with other people who are going through challenging and good times. Yeah, both, right? Right. Well, this conversation is about healing and transformation. So let me ask you this other question. What is your personal experience with healing and transformation through writing? My own personal experience is that, um, let's see, I guess that goes, well, I've been writing since I'm 10. I've been writing in journals, very, you know, and I've always felt better when I was writing. So I realized that writing was a way of healing. But the real transformation came for me when I was, I guess, well, it's happened in any challenging time in my life. But when I, when in my late 40s, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I was trying to figure out why I was diagnosed. Nobody had cancer in my family. So I went back to study my grandmother's life because uh, I was very close with her. She taught me, actually, she inspired my, my literary world. I went back to study her life to see if that's why she committed suicide. And I did not find that to be true. But what I did realize is that in studying her life and figuring out why she committed suicide and the trauma that she had, um, she had left me a journal that she wrote about her experience in World War One, And I realized how healing that was for her. And studying her life became a very healing thing for me. And it became actually my master's thesis. I wrote a book called Regina's Closet, Finding My Grandmother's Secret Journal. So that was my first transformative moment. I realized that when we have childhood trauma, it very often sits it sits in our, the cells of our body until we actually resolve it. And writing the book really helped resolve that trauma for me. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. What is that about writing, Diana, that promotes so much healing and transformation too, of course? Well, you know, there's different ways to share our stories. A lot of people prefer, you know, the narrative with, or sharing the narrative of our lives. Some people would prefer, you know, personal therapists that they share their story with. But, you know, the therapist responds, the therapist talks back. In writing, you're by yourself, you're venting, you're tapping into your subconscious mind if you're especially doing stream of consciousness writing and all kinds of things can emerge. I mean, I... The way I look at writing is it's a journey. And like you mentioned in the beginning, it's it's not sitting down and writing, saying, I want to write a book and thinking of the destination. It's enjoying the journey and seeing the surprises that emerge along the way. And there's always surprises, which is wonderful. It's magic. It is magic. That's a great word. Yeah, I agree. You mentioned something interesting. You said that writing was perhaps still is a spiritual practice for you. I know you're not a religious person. What is the difference between being spiritual and being religious? Well, uh, spirituality is, uh, um, would I, what's the best way to express it? Uh, well, I think the best way is to say that religion is kind of an organized practice. You go to church, you go to temple, you, you, it's a, it's a more of a, a ritualistic, um, organized practice where spirituality is kind of a broader, you know, uh, broader feeling about what's going on in the universe and how you're dealing with it. Um, the spirituality is also seen as a search for truth in one's life, uh, whether it's being happy, being happy and finding out what brings you that happiness. 
Uh, I'd say that writing as a spiritual practice connects you to what seems to be most right for you, both personally and professionally. Uh, it also helps you determine what your mission for being is. So it's more, I would say spirituality is more broad and personalized depending on the person. Yeah. In a way, spirituality promotes self-discovery. Yeah. Let's talk about writing for change. That's the, the introduction of your book. You mentioned that. And, uh, but before that, this is a question that I ask or I have asked before. How is change different from transformation? I don't know that there's a huge, a huge difference, except transformation feels more, more powerful, more positive, more um, directed. Change kind of just happens. Like we have a COVID virus right now, so it just it happens. We're not transformed, but it's changed our lives. We had no control over it. I believe with transformation, you have more control over uh, over change. I said, that's interesting. Yeah, the way you're saying. So it's almost um, we are choosing to transform and change. And changing, we have no control over it. Yeah, I like that. Right. Um, talk to me about writing as therapy and writing for healing. Well, writing for healing, um, they kind of go hand in hand, actually, because what people often heal, you know, when they go to therapists, they're looking for ways to heal from something that they're dealing with, whether it's, you know, about relationships, past traumas. They're very closely tied. Therapy, I would say, perhaps is more formulaic, like there's a there's a way to have the therapy through writing. Uh, actually, I'm working on a course. I can't really talk about it right now, but I'm working on a course, um, an online course writing for therapy. So it's kind of in the forefront of my mind right now. Um, actually, a lot of therapists do tell people after their sessions to go home and write, and then maybe they would share uh, their feelings, even write a poem about what they're feeling, uh, and then they, the therapist could perhaps analyze it. It's a little, I would say that writing for therapy might be a little bit more analytical and it goes deeper. So on step one, you talk about rituals for writing. Very interesting ones, creating a sacred space, grounding yourself, feeling gratitude. Yeah, I'm a very ritualistic person. I think that rituals ground us. And so I believe uh, you need to get your you need to get psyched up, if you will, or get in a state of mind for writing. And whether that means sitting down in, in your sacred space, which could be in your office, could be in the backyard, could be at a bookstore, but it kind of sets the mood for your writing practice wherever you feel comfortable. I used to do a lot of writings in bookstores before they, the larger ones went out of business. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so whether it's sitting down and you know, having your journal ready, burning a candle, whether it's meditating before, whether it's doing some yoga poses, whether it's sitting uh, and getting a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, something that kind of signals to your brain, okay, it's time to write. So that's um, all about setting rituals uh, in my mind. How is gratitude connected to that, to those rituals? 
Well, gratitude is about feeling love and appreciation for yourself and others, as we talked about. And so I think you have to have gratitude for the opportunity to be able to sit down and write. And so I think it's all about having the opportunity and, you know, honoring yourself, honoring your paper, having gratitude for, you know, I'm a big, big believer in writing in with longhand. But if you prefer a computer because you don't like your handwriting. So just offering gratitude and thanks for your tools that you're using to write. Yes. Yeah. That, that resonates and makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned being fearless and courageous, which is part of writing, especially for therapy or healing, right? How do we overcome fear? (laughs) (laughs) Fear is definitely a showstopper. Fear definitely stops people from writing. I just, um, it's not an easy thing to do for a lot of people. I would just say, I had a writing professor that used to say, just let it rip. (laughs) Right. Just just do it. I mean, what are you afraid of? You know, when I first, my first cancer diagnosis, my first thing my father-in-law said to me was have no fear. He said, I survived two world wars. Just what are you afraid of? I mean, what? When I said, I'm afraid of, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of pain. And he said, well, you know, you don't have any control about of that. And so just have no fear. I think if we uh, live in the moment and we have less fear, if we think too much in the future, uh, then fear overcomes us. I have a really good friend that's going through a cancer journey now, and she's extremely fearful as, as much as I've, you know, she's spiritual and is, I've given her all these books to read and Thich Nhat Hanh and various other inspirational leaders. Uh, you know, fear is just, it's overwhelming. I think meditation also can help you release fear. Yeah, and it does. And that's exactly what you talk about on step two, cultivating Mm self-awareness. And then you mentioned mindfulness meditation and love and kindness meditation as well, which is a very specific uh, meditation. That's wonderful. I'm intrigued by hypnosis. How does it help in cultivating self-awareness? Well, uh, hypnosis works for some people, not for others. And for, for self-awareness, it just helps you focus inward, basically taps into some of the, um, if you will, the, the dead end streets in your brain, you know, it taps into some of the trauma that you might've had. So as I said, it works for some people and not for others. Right. That's the specific technique. Right. And um, do you meditate? Do you you meditate when you don't write? I know you write every day, you mentioned. Yeah, I've I've been meditating for, let's see, over 40 years. (laughs) Um, I've tried different practices just for variety. Uh, I started out with transcendental meditation in the 70s. Then I went to various other kinds and I'm back into transcendental meditation. So I kind of do, I've done the circular thing. I find that the results for me with transcendental uh, are the best. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Uh, well, transcendental meditation was began by Maharishi Yogi back in the 60s or 70s. And it it's the only really scientifically proven meditation. A lot of, you know, celebrities have tried it and used it for many years. And basically, you have to be initiated. It's it's very formulaic. You get initiated into the program, and you're given a mantra that's specific for you and your personality. It's a it's a whole big secret. They won't tell you how you get your mantra. 
But you gave me a mantra. Actually, I, I went to a, a retreat and someone tried to give me a new mantra and it just didn't feel right. And I went back to the origins and to the organization. They said, no, your mantra never changes throughout your life. So that was an interesting revelation. So you, anyway, you use this mantra and you repeat it for 20 minutes twice a day. Uh, and it really, for me, I go really deep and I feel like I'm. it's helped me in many ways in my creativity creative world. It's also helped me with a sense of detachment, emotions or feelings. Um, I also have used over the years breath meditation, which for people that have trouble with various other ones, it works. Walking meditation is also beautiful for people that have trouble sitting still, but transcendental has worked for me. Yeah. That sounds really good. And you also talk about on step two, cultivating self-awareness, you talk about knowing your shadow. What does it mean exactly? Well, your shadow is the part of you that, uh, how do I, what's the best way of trying to be really simple? The shadow is basically the unconscious part of yourself that is hidden from immediate awareness. Like very often they say, if there's something in someone else that you don't like, uh, typically, or chances are that it's, it's part of your dark shadow. Like if there's someone that's really, Uh, has a jealous personality that you really, that it bothers you, you should probably examine yourself because maybe that's your shadow. Maybe that's something that you subconsciously uh, have. Oh, so it's a reflection in a way. Yeah, and the shadow is composed of impulses that society view as unacceptable also too because our conscious mind doesn't want to claim ownership to those feelings. I mean, Carl Jung is the one who came up with this. She does, did a lot of shadow work. And he said the best way to get a handle on what your shadow qualities are is to think of what, like, as I said, think of what other qualities and other people that bother you. And then the idea is to accept that those same characteristics are true of yourself. Uh, and that's something that a lot of us have a difficult time facing. Yes. My father used to have this really great saying, when you point your finger to someone who's you're blaming for something, there's three fingers pointing back at you. <laughs> true. <laughs> That is so true. <laughs> wow. This is fascinating because if we live, if we apply this idea, this concept, then we don't blame anyone for anything anymore. <laughs> Everything changes. <laughs> On step three, you talk about speaking your truth. So I'm wondering, how is it different? Speaking my truth is different from speaking the truth. Mm. Well, I don't believe there is an absolute truth. Uh, I think uh, we all have emotional truths. Uh, some of many of us have probably had experiences that we've lived through with someone else. And looking back, they see the experience completely different. And it's not that they're making up stories or lying. It's just that they're looking with a different set of eyes or a different emotional truth. So there's no, I, you know, and, and it's okay. We all have different emotional truths. We all see things differently. What's important to one person will be, you know, not as important to another. So that's what I mean about speaking your truth and not when you're writing, not to think about What if someone reads this, what will they think? Because that doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. It's what you need to do is speak your truth. If you're thinking of publishing, then you might want to reevaluate because you might not want to hurt anyone's feelings. If you're saying something really negative, uh, 
But it's important to get down to your emotional truth. What are you really feeling in your heart? Sometimes our mind gets in the way. So I always tell my students to focus on your heart when you're writing. Mm, Wow. Is that the same as the authentic voice? Yeah, that's pretty much the authentic voice. And uh, the way I explain the authentic voice is if you're sitting across the table from a friend and you're sharing a story, that's probably your truest voice because you're you know, you're not having to put on any pretenses, make up any stories or fake stories. You're just telling from your heart what happened about a particular event. It's very natural. Yeah, I like that. It has a flow to it, right? And it has a flow, exactly. You mentioned earlier being in the moment. That's very important as a method, so that's why meditation is so important to bring us to the present moment. And then on um, yeah, step three, you talk about memory and imagination. So I guess my question is about how do we balance being in the moment and also imagining, using our imagination? Mm, good question. Well, you know, there's different kinds of writing. When we're in the moment uh, and we're journaling, we're basically writing what we're feeling at the moment, like what's, what, how are we affected by what's going on in our universe and our personal universe or what's going on in the larger collective universe. When we're talking about memory and imagination uh, in my book, what I'm talking about in my book, writing for bliss, what I'm particularly talking about is when we're writing a memoir and we have to dig up memories of events that happened a really long time ago. For example, when I was writing my first memoir, Regina's Closet, about my grandmother, an orphan in World War One, I was able to write about my memories of her as she was raising me for the first 10 years of my life. But when I was writing about her childhood growing up in Poland, I was never there. So I had to implement a little bit of imagination by doing some of my research and what did houses look like in Poland and, you know, during World War One and whether they were, what color were the roofs, what color were the streets, what kind of streets. So, you know, I kind of used a little bit of a fiction license to create a picture for my readers. So that's what I'm talking about when I say memory and imagination. Right. My question was about being the moment and also imagining. So it's um, is that part of being in the moment in a way to use the mind to imagine? Well, um, I mean, it depends what kind of writing you do. I mean, I think it's a twofold question. Being in the moment, as I said earlier, is like when you're journaling about the present moment. But if you're it really and if you're doing fiction writing, of course, using a lot of imagination, um, hopefully you stay in the moment the whole time you're writing. But, you know, you if you're writing about something that happened in the past, you can't really be in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> yes, that that is true. Um, so another topic that I, I thought it was very interesting, it is fascinating to me. Uh, you talk about mortality as a great teacher. That's step four. About mortality being a teacher. Yes. Well, that's a big question because, you know, I sometimes teach writing in funeral homes and um, it's amazing what emerges. I would say uh, the value of being aware of the reality of death is what, you know, it kind of motivates you to kind of be in the present and to make the best of your living. But I also think that when someone dies, that, that a loved one dies, it really 
brings forth a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions that remain unanswered about the person's feelings, about your relationship. So it's a great teacher in the sense that you have to really do a lot of reflection. Yeah, and that's true, reflection. We, yeah, we focus more on things that matter the most. Yeah. What is the stream of consciousness writing, Diana? Uh, that's a really good question. Student consciousness writing, uh, I, in my courses, I often compare stream of consciousness versus prompt writing. Stream of consciousness writing is like when you just sit down and you first thing in the morning, it's a really great time to pull out your journal. Stream of consciousness writing would be like starting out the journal, always put your date on top of the page, but you'd write, right now I am feeling yucky. And then you keep going and you're writing, I don't know why I feel yucky, the weather's not so great, there's a lot of things happening in the universe that are stressing me out. And then you're going, there's no beginning, middle and end with stream of consciousness writing. You could start writing about the morning and then you might end up speaking about a sister that you haven't seen in years or a parent that had passed away or a friend you had as, you know, as a child. So it's really a great way, stream of consciousness writing is a great way to tap into your subconscious mind and then all these surprises emerge. It's almost like free writing. It's free writing. And actually, some people call it free writing. Some people call it automatic writing. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, my other question is about poetry. And is poetry somehow more healing than other forms of writing? I don't know if it's more healing. It is for a lot of people, but I think it depends on the person's comfort zone. Some people feel really threatened by the genre of, of poetry. Uh, I think... In a lot of ways, it really is the voice of the soul. So, and it has to be succinct. You can't like get flowery, use too many words. You really have to get to the point just because of the form of poetry. But poetry therapy has become very popular over the years. So, again, it depends on the individual person's preference. Right. Do you write poetry as well? I do. Yeah, I've got. I think five poetry books and one more coming out, hopefully this year or next. I like that way you're saying that poetry, in a way, is the voice of the soul. It connects better with the soul because we have to be more immediate, more urgent with our message. How wonderful. Um, would you like to add anything else or read a passage in your book before I ask you my final questions? Oh, I could think of a passage I would have to flip, but I don't want to waste too much time. I mean, I think the most important thing for bliss is really finding your passion and finding your joy. We, you know, as far as we know, we only have one life. There might be some religions that believe otherwise, but I think if people that are not happy in what they're doing, the best thing is to start writing and see where their joy is. I, I have a perfect example of a and a personal assistant I had, she was fantastic, and she was inspired after coming to some of my workshops to journal. And while she was journaling, she realized that her real passion is being is cooking because that's what she did as a child. So she actually resigned from the position and went back to culinary school. So I think finding your passion is really important for finding your bliss. Right, and writing helps incredibly. Um, writing. <laughs> That's so true. 
So my final questions, um, somewhat unrelated to the subject, but maybe not. How do you define success? What is to be successful in your opinion? Well, I mean, there's personal success and there's universal success. So uh, I think when you are in touch with what your heart center wants, then that's successful. Mm, yeah, the heart it's nothing center. Nothing with money, nothing to do with money. Right. And when you say the heart, the heart center, would that be finding our purpose, our passion? Yeah, I think that would that would be, yes. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? The hardest lesson to learn about myself was that, um, I don't know how I would answer that. I would guess I would say that that I'm really good at what I do. I was I was really beaten down by my mother as a child that I would never amount to anything. And so I had a lot of self-confidence issues early on. So I guess the lesson that I've learned is that if you follow your heart center and that was that I wanted to be a writer, that everything's going to be all right. It's true. So true. What is another word for healing? Another word for healing? I don't think there is any other word for healing. <laughs> like I, like I said, you know, I, transformation could be an, a, an arm of healing. Yeah. Yeah. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change about your life or do anything differently? I would probably move to an island in Hawaii. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, anything else you would do, Diana? Uh, either Hawaii or Bali. They're two places that really inspired me. Uh, that sounds good. Yeah. Really good. That's um, an interesting question that I ask myself every day because we don't know when that will happen. I guess some people do, but uh, most of us don't. So that goes back to what we've been talking about, finding our bliss, finding our purpose, our passion, and living it and just doing something about it. Right. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? That you're born, you die, and that something happens in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> something happens, right? I like that, actually. Very simple. <laughs> And who knows what that is exactly? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I never heard it that way before. <laughs> That's great. You're fun. You're a lot of fun. Thank you so much <laughs> for your presence and your wisdom, Diana. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? The best way to get more information about me would be my website, which is dianarab.com, and that's D-I-A-N-A-R-A-A-B.com. I've got all my workshops there, my books, um, some wisdoms, all kinds of goodies. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye for now, Diana. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Diana Rabb, please visit her website, dianarabb.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. 
I want to thank the Patreon members Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.